EdTech can only help to redefine education when it's teachers themselves and students who want to redefine. Welcome to Solar Spotlight, the podcast from the Society for Learning Analytics Research, Solar. In this podcast series, we have conversations with guest speakers to engage the wider community with leading research practice and key issues in learning analytics. I'm Ishan Tsai from the University of Edinburgh, the host for this show. The topic we are discussing today is turning crisis into opportunities, edtech, analytics, and education. According to Holland IQ, EdTech started the last decade with 500 million of venture capital investments in 2010 and finished 14 times higher at 7 billion in 2019. Over the first six months of 2020, 4.5 billion of venture capital was invested in EdTech, which sets up the sector for a potentially record-breaking full year. Alongside this trend is a rising concern about education being redefined by EdTech companies, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, when these companies emerged to provide solutions to educators and learners, meanwhile profiting from the disruptions that we are experiencing in education. It's important to take a moment to reflect on the changes that the current trends may bring to learning and teaching and think about the responsibilities that we as a community share in enhancing learning using data technologies. I have great pleasure to welcome two special guests, Professor Alison Littlejohn from University College London in the UK and Mike Sharkey from Arizona State University in the US. I'll let them tell us a bit more about themselves and what they do in relation to using data and relevant technology to enhance learning. Well, hello, I'm Alison Littlejohn. I'm the director of the UCL Knowledge Lab in University College London. And that's a research centre focused on the future of learning and communication with technologies. So the lab includes around 50 people. It's very interdisciplinary. So we've got people from AI, data scientists, learning analytics, anthropologists, educators, all kinds of disciplines working together. And we work across a range of different areas of research. My own research is in professional and digital learning. And I'm focusing on learning as a way to address global challenges. So examples, uh, looking at scaling education through online learning, um, working with the finance sector to understand learning and uncertainty, um, been working with the energy industry, looking at improving industry and particularly reducing learning from incidents. And then working in the health sector, uh, focusing on antimicrobial resistance and how professional learning can help reduce antimicrobial resistance. Hi, I'm Mike Sharkey. I'm the Director of Data and Analytics at Arizona State University. So that is our data team under the university's IT department. And what we do is we do what we can with data to help support student success. So our team will be moving data, we will be visualizing data, 
um, using innovative tools to analyze data any way we can to support the university and our students. It's a wonderful role. Um, I've got a phenomenal team who works with me to do this. Um, I've had a long career in data and analytics in higher ed over the last 20 years. I've worked for universities, I've worked for vendors, I've started my own analytics company, and so I've seen the space from all sides. And uh, I was at the first LAC conference back in 2011 in, uh, in frigid Banff, Canada. So I've been a big uh, contributor and supporter of LAC and Solar since it started. Yeah, so Mike and Allison, in the past six months at least, uh, we know that the pandemic has really transformed the educational landscape quite dramatically. I was wondering in your recent experience working you, with your teams at your university or even across universities, have you observed any changes in terms of um, the conversation universities have with the edtech industry? Well, there's no doubt the conversation has changed. So in most universities, digital education was before at the margins of face-to-face -face teaching. Um, universities have now, in a very short time, gone online. And of course, the speed of change has brought both positives and negatives. On the positive side, universities are taking digital education more seriously. They have to because millions of students worldwide have moved to studying online and that's the primary way of studying right now during the pandemic. There's better investment and consideration of what's possible by the senior teams in universities and teaching staff are all now skilled to at least a basic level in digital ed education. So we've seen many, many positives. However, on the negative side, there's been a so-called pivot to online teaching, where some universities literally went online over a weekend. This was not well planned, and it's tended to replicate lectures and didactic approaches to instruction, rather than thinking about all the opportunities that we have with technologies. It also means that the edtech industry, particularly the so-called edtech giants like Google, Microsoft, and so on, have had an inroad to public education systems. Uh, for example, we've seen in the news, New York City, which already planned to use MS Teams for its school system, accelerated the adoption of Microsoft products. Well, this is benefits in that students learning from home have access to educational resources and support. However, there are also huge risks, particularly the opportunity for companies like Microsoft to introduce systems that track students without the level of questioning, which may have been there before in terms of thinking about how we gather data in public system. Mike, what's your experience like? Did you also observe any similar or different aspects that Alison shared with us? Yeah, very similar to Allison. I mean, obviously everything changed and I'll share some thoughts here. And just to clarify, these are my thoughts, not necessarily those of Arizona State University uh, as I'm not a spokesman for the university. Uh, but um, I think the, the biggest thing it's changed to try to sum it up is urgency. Um, it's created this sense of urgency. And in general, I think that urgency favors the ed tech vendor space. Obviously, if there's an urgency, if there's a timing issue, it's something you as an institution have to deal with. And in that fine balance between the institutions and the companies, um, the balance tips a little bit in favor of the company. 
Um, I think the best example of this uh, here in the US is remote proctoring. Um, um, a lot of institutions said, well, geez, we need to go online and remote. And then um, institutions that haven't done, any, done that in the past say, well, how do we prevent schools from cheating? Oh, we hire this remote proctoring company. And if you've been paying any attention to what's going on, that is riddled with issues. There's obviously some positive there, but there's a lot more negative. So that's a great example of how this urgency has caused issues. On the other side, uh, another example here in the States is the California state system. What they did is they decided very early on to go online. So for the um, fall 2020 semester, they decided in June, if not before, and said, we're gonna go online. And um, just recently, um, we're now in the fall semester, they've already made the decision to go online in the spring. Because they made that decision so far in advance, they've given themselves time, they've reduced the urgency, and don't have to cave to certain agreements that they might not otherwise do. So I think that urgency is the best way I see it, and you see each institution handling that in different ways. Right. And we also see that since the pandemic outbreak, institutions have to uh, really shift teaching online very quickly and there's a lot for us to adapt to. So currently um, we see that edtech companies rise to provide solutions for learners and teachers and um, there is concern about edtech redefining education or perhaps it's not necessarily concern per se but just a phenomenon in general that we are seeing. So based on this I was wondering what your observation is, uh, whether you agree or not that Edtech redefining education and what you see is good or bad. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll start and just say no. I don't think Edtech is redefining education. I think that is giving Edtech too much power and agency, which it doesn't have or deserve. Um, my views are very US-centric, obviously, from my career being here. Um, things like government funding and policy for education, uh, tuition and financial aid, the value that employers put on a degree, that's what defines education. Um, to me, if someone claims that ed tech is redefining education, they're probably trying to sell you something. I've been an ed tech vendor, I've um, had my own company, so I understand what it means to be on that side of the table. And it's wonderful to work in partnership with institutions, but personally from my 20 year career to say that ed tech is redefining education is is giving it recognition that I, I don't think it quite deserves. Alison, do you agree with that? I do agree. I'm very wary of terms like redefining education or fixing broken educational systems. And I agree with Mike. These terms are sometimes used by people who are trying to sell something, entrepreneurs or even the, the ed tech giants to try and sell their products. And these products sometimes actually reproduce the educational systems that they're claimed to replace and fix. Uh, sometimes they actually exacerbate um, existing problems that we have within um, higher education rather than solving them, for example. So um, I think that EdTech can only help to redefine education when it's teachers themselves and students who want to redefine and um, so the edtech industry needs to work with the sectors to try and identify what needs to be done and reduce effects of problems 
that students and teachers face every day. So, I mean, some of the current issues, I mean, in the pandemic, we're, we're in a very unique point in time. However, prior to the pandemic, there were issues like student well-being, for example, that were becoming more um, prominent in education. We know that universities traditionally have offered uh, advice to students, but we really need to professionalize that advice much more to offer student well-being support in, in a much better way. Now, technology can help with some of that, but it's not, it's not going to provide the full solution. And particularly when we talk about students being on campus, then some of the solutions or improvements to problems that we have are likely to be a combination of technology solutions that can simplify or improve or make things more efficient or help us see patterns, for example, but working alongside humans who are professionals, either teachers or healthcare professionals or advisors of studies who work with the students. Yeah, that's, I mean, I love what Allison said that you know, there are plenty of positive things that come out of ed tech, but the foundation of education, student well-being, uh, sound pedagogy, like those have been around for ages. And, um, you know, you give a, a teacher a uh, piece of paper and a pen, and if they're a good teacher, they can do a great job teaching. You give uh, a teacher a piece of technology, and it's a bad piece of technology, they're not going to do a good job teaching. So it's really dependent on those core foundational pieces. One of the things that we've found since the pandemic, we've um, we set up a study to understand the experiences of university staff and academics when they started not only teaching online, researching online, but also working from home. And so this study is called Moving to Online Teaching and homeworking moth and we have a website at UCL that tells you a little bit about the study but one of the key findings is that some of the issues that people face are already systemic within the system and we found that uh, the moving to online study has simply um, made these problems bigger, so ex exemplified some of these systemic problems. So if I give you an example, uh, we know that students need even more pastoral support than they had before, because uh, for example, on our campus, we have students from all over the world, and we had to advise them to go back to their country of residence. So then they're learning um, not only online, but at a distance and in a, a different time zone. They also have other concerns. For example, um, their partners or parents might have lost their jobs. They might be ill themselves. So a lot of our academics were spending a lot more time online giving pastoral care to the students. Now that's quite difficult even when you do it face to face, but when you're doing it online, it's mediated by technology and you're doing it from home, it becomes a very complex situation. For a lot of our academics, they were putting in far more hours than you know, their job spec says that they're, um, they're working and they're trying to talk about very sensitive issues with the students. 
and they're doing that from their own home. And sometimes if they've got very little space at home, that can be very complex. So how do we improve this now that we've we've done this pivot online we're going into the first full academic year when we know our students will largely be learning online and partly face to face well we can look back at what happened last time and we can make sure that we put in systems and processes that help us improve some of those systems will be technologies but a lot of them are just simply about the processes and the human interactions and how we make those more effective Again, agreeing that ed tech is not redefining education. I look at the monopoly that the degree has in the workplace. Many jobs must have a bachelor's degree. Um, that's been a, a stranglehold for decades. Um, now you see Google saying, uh, we're going to offer six-month certificate programs and we will hire people from there regardless if they have a degree or not. That changes the game. Um, right? The, the what do... What do companies accept as proof of learning? Um, so that gets into uh, competitors like Google offering certificates. That gets into higher education in outcomes. How do you measure? How do you show this student who is at your institution for four years now knows the things he or she is supposed to know? Those are those core things. And we, we, we've been seeing kind of um, holes in the wall being poked over the last decade or so. Um, I don't think we're at a tipping point, um, but you start to see pieces of these things. Some of them are technology-based, some of them are policy-based. It's nothing to do with technology. The recent changes have uh, certainly surfaced some needs around areas of um, skill development and community building um, and others. Do you think the current trends will open up opportunities for using learning analytics to support learning or create challenges instead? If I can follow up on the point that Mike just made about um, the, the, the game changer, rather than necessarily studying for a three or four year degree, and, and then that being the currency to get your job, that employers want to bring in people and for them to, to learn in a much shorter time, partly because you know, knowledge is a much shorter half-life than, than it used to have. And we're seeing that not just in terms of the, in, in computer science or um, analytics or AI, but also in the finance sector and other sectors as well. So I think that one of the opportunities for learning analytics is to really identify what are the ways that employers or teachers or learners themselves have to understand whether or not they're actually learning or whether um, their skills are improving. So rather than thinking about assessments, traditional assessments at, at universities, what would be those indicators and how can we use analytics to show someone that um, actually they're working in a very different way or doing things in a very different way and are uh, more proficient than they were before. And part of the reason I think this is really important is because we've seen education systems decide not to have exams during the pandemic. So um, in the UK, for example, um, both schools and universities decided not to have exams. So I mean, that, was, that was a real game changer for them because before there had always been huge currency in exams, 
sitting these exams in a very traditional way. Now, um, unfortunately, it didn't always work out very well because, um, as, as many people know, in the UK, in England and in Scotland as well, um, the way that the exam um, assessment was, was worked out by teachers and then the teacher grades were, were fed into an algorithm which, um, which then regraded according to, to demographics. That didn't work very well and the government had to do a bit of a U-turn on it. But the fact that um, you know, we dared to assess people in a different way from what had been done before, I think is a, is a real game changer and we should try to push that forward. We know that exams, traditional exams, don't work the way that we imagine that they work. So if we could find other ways of being able to understand whether or not people are learning, that would be helpful. But what we mustn't do is fall into a different kind of trap where we're still not accurately measuring whether or not people have learned. Yeah, you know, Ishan, you, you ask, um, you know, if the current trends uh, will make uh, open up opportunities for learning analytics. And um, it's really, in my mind, it's the same answer. The ed tech learning analytics is not innately good or bad. It's how you apply it. So I was going to bring up the A-levels as well as a poor way to apply technology to learning. And, you know, you know that a hundred times better than I do because it's, it's in your world. Um, uh, on the positive side, I look at things we've done with Zoom. So we now have students taking classes on Zoom. Um, here at, at ASU, we get the Zoom data. Um, so we can see students and if they were engaged in a Zoom class and we might not know that information. Now, we're very cautious, like you don't wanna make assumptions about it that you don't know um, could be false or could cause any issues, um, but it really helps us to get a better idea of students. We've actually used it in a real positive way. When we switched um, at the start of this semester, um, we were able to see are there students who are not engaging? Because if somebody is not physically in class and if they're not on Zoom, they may not be learning, they may not be, they may have issues. We wouldn't know about that. We can now see that, and if there are students who aren't engaged at all, we can reach out and drop them a note and say, is it okay? Is the semester going all right? Is there anything I can help with? We have so many people set up to support students and their well-being, but we don't always know that they need assistance. So they're very positive applications, but again, it's what you do with it. It's not the technology itself. So I think in general, um, the winds are blowing in a favorable direction for data and analytics in higher ed. But still, it depends on who you are and what you do with those data. Yeah, back to this A-level incident that Alison brought up earlier, which caused a dramatic outcry here in the UK, um, and lots of scandals as well, um, and certainly has also caused distrust in algorithms. So I was wondering what you both think in terms of how we can build a trustful environment for learning analytics, especially in this current climate? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is get the balance right between public and private systems. And we've talked about that um, during this uh, discussion. We need to recognize the tension between for-profit companies. Uh, for example, if you're starting an ed tech startup, you need to make a profit to be able to continue the work. Um, but then there are private education systems 
that are trying to address very deep systemic societal issues and, and are for the good of society. These two perspectives don't always match up, but when they do, it can work very well. The second thing is uh, we need to design learning analytics that starts from a human rights perspective. Uh, for example, the European Union introduced the GDPR legislation to give citizens more control over the use of data about them. Now, this approach can cause uh, headaches for computer scientists or learning analytics colleagues developing systems, but it's right in its intention to put human rights first. So I think if we start with a human perspective, that's a very good um, starting point. The third thing is um, to base systems on existing problems and, and to work with teachers. The teachers are the professionals. They understand about learning. Make sure that systems use their knowledge and uh, you know, have a, a, an understanding of what it is to be a teacher. So for example, I mentioned earlier uh, student well-being the pastoral care that teachers offer is critical for learning, but it's often unseen and unacknowledged. And a lot of systems can inadvertently be developed in a way that um, over, overlooks pastoral care, and it can almost de-skill teachers. I like Allison's comment on the, the human side of this, because if the question is how we, can we build a trustful environment for learning analytics, to me it's the same way we ask how can two humans trust each other? be honest, be transparent, work as partners. Um, if there are opposing views, have a constructive conversation about it. Um, it works the same, right? Vendors need to be honest and transparent with the institutions. Institutions need to be honest, honest and transparent with the students. Um, you shouldn't have vendors in using data for things that they shouldn't be um, or they don't disclose. And you shouldn't have students uh, taking to Twitter and going off on a rant when something happens if they're not fully informed about the whole situation. And so um, the more we can open these discussions between the two parties, I think the more trustful it is. And there are some wonderful examples on this advisory board I was on. We had different universities um, from around the world and they would share examples of, oh, here's the page we have on our website where we talk to students um, about what we do with information, what information we have. So um, there's a lot out there. I think it's just about having this open conversation and dialogue. And as we know in this day and age, everybody is about sharing and having good constructive dialogue. Nobody gets um, uh, against each other and has any negativity because it's all such a good thing these days. Great. Thanks, Alison and Mike, for sharing your views on uh, the topic of edtech analytics and education. The conversation really helped us to think more deeply about how universities and the edtech industry can work together to address the current challenges and how we can build a more trustful uh, environment for learning analytics. And now it's time for a game with you both. Our special guests are invited to share with us um, three statements about themselves and one of them will be a lie. Uh, we uh, invite our audience to guess which statement uh, is a lie and tweet about it using hashtag SolarSpotlight on Twitter and the answer will be announced in the next episode. Uh, so in our last episode, we had Andrea Stewart with us on the discussion of diversity and inclusion. 
Here's the answer of her two truths and a lie. Okay, my three statements. Uh, one, I am a macaroni and cheese connoisseur. Two, I build all my computers from scratch. And three, I have participated in the world's largest tug of war. Uh, the lie is number two, I do not build all my computers from scratch. Okay, now let's hear some interesting facts about Mike and Allison. So here are my two truths and a lie. Number one, I hiked across the Grand Canyon in one day. It's called Rim to Rim, and it's about a 24-mile hike. Number two, I appeared on the game show Jeopardy on TV. This was years ago when I was in my 20s. Number three, I ran the New York City Marathon. It's been a goal of mine ever since I started running. Alison, what do you think? I think the middle one is a lie. Okay. Well, we'll find out the answers in the next episode. Um, Alison, would you like to tell us some things about yourself? Okay, so here are my two truths and a lie. So the first is, I started my career researching explosives and rocket propellants. The second is, I lived on a croft, which is a small farm in the north of Scotland for four years and I learned how to shear sheep. And the third is, I practiced Mai Tai for several years. Mm. <laughs> Mike, what do you think? I'm gonna go with the first one because it sounds a little too obvious. Is it? The second one sounds too true to be true. So maybe it's not actually true. <laughs> maybe I'll go with the second one. <laughs> so thank you so much for this um, interesting conversation we had and was very informative. So thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this podcast on turning crisis into opportunities, tech, analytics, and education. My name is Ishan Tsai, and I've been talking with Alison Littlejohn and Mike Sharkey today. If you would like to continue the conversation, please tweet us at Solar Research using the hashtag Solar Spotlight or post a comment at our podcast channel on SoundCloud. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast, which is available through both iTunes and Spotify.